1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. The
2: only thing that I couldn't prepare for was the shows. I couldn't imagine what it would feel like to play for that many people. Nor could I imagine playing for that energetic of a crowd. The fans are very loud.
3: <laughs> right.
1: Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas.
3: And I'm your other host, Nate Chenen.
1: Nate, it is so nice to see you again. Tell me, whose voice did we hear at the top of the show?
3: That was Kalia Vandiver, a jazz trombonist and composer.
1: A jazz trombonist? Why did you want to speak with her?
3: (laughs) Well, Kalia is actually, she's one of the more exciting young artists on the improvised music scene today. She's someone I've been watching with great interest since her debut album in 2019, which was titled In Bloom. But what led me to invite her on working was an extraordinary experience that she's recently had as part of the record-breaking arena and stadium tour by none other than Harry Styles. What? (laughs) Yeah. So what was that like? I wanted to hear about it. Um, And I was especially intrigued to know how it had influenced her own music. Yeah, no
1: doubt. Well, I am very excited to hear this interview. But something tells me that you have an extra segment exclusively for Slate Plus members. What will they hear?
3: Yeah, we had some fun with that. Um, Kalia Mm -hmm. is Juilliard trained. She's a band leader and composer and... prolific collaborator. But Mm. she's also been a member of some horn sections, you know, in rock bands and pop bands and and not just with Harry Styles. So I asked her for a few of her own personal touchstones. What are some favorite horn sections and what makes them great? Wow.
1: If you are a member of Slate Plus, you'll get to hear that at the end of the episode. And if you aren't it's really, really easy to join as a Slate Plus member. You get to hear extra segments on this show and others like the Waves and the Culture Gabfest. You'll get bonus episodes of podcasts like Big Mood, Little Mood and Slow Burn. And of course, you will never hit a paywall on Slate.com. To learn more, go to Slate.com slash Working Plus. All right, let's hear Nate's conversation with Kalia Vandever.
3: Kalia Vandiver, thank you for joining me on Working to talk about your process.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
3: So you are a jazz trombonist, composer, bandleader, (laughs) with three albums to your name. And the most recent is called We Fell in Turn, released earlier this year. It's an unaccompanied solo recording that really sort of dwells in dream space. And I wondered, maybe as an invocation for this conversation, Maybe we'll hear a moment from that album now. Sounds good. This is a a beautiful recording, and I wanted to begin with this solitary, inward-seeking piece of music because it would seem to be a really stark contrast to another aspect of your recent experience. So what I'm referring to is the recently concluded Harry Styles Stadium and Arena Tour, Love on Tour. It played more than 170 dates. Uh, to more than five million people, it's the fourth highest-grossing tour of all time. So, I just want to begin with a question about scale. <laughs> can you can you tell me what it's like, just in general terms, to be an independent creative artist, accustomed to working in this independent scale, and to be a part of a production that is so big and massive? and such a production.
2: Mm -hmm. Sure. So uh, I started touring with Harry last year on the North America run. And Mm -hmm. I then followed up with the Europe tour this summer. And initially it was daunting because I had never played for an audience that large. We played 15 sold out nights at Madison Square Garden, which is not something that I even dreamed of happening. I Right. I don't know whether I've told the story before, but my sister had a dream months prior uh, to me getting the call in which she dreamt that I was booked to go on tour with Harry Styles before I knew about it. So she, oh, my God. Because she had been listening to the record and knew there was horns on the, the album. So she told me, I think it was in... May or June of last year, she's like, I had the craziest dream. Like, you toured with Harry because there's a bunch of horns on the record. I'm like, wow, I I don't know whether that will happen, but that's awesome. But she, <laughs> in a way, manifested it for me. So, so. she
3: manifested it. Yeah, wow. she did. Yeah.
2: Um, You know, I prepared for it how I would prepare for any other gig. You know, you get your parts, you memorize them. The only thing that I couldn't prepare for was... The shows. I couldn't imagine what it would feel like to play for that many people, Mm -hmm. nor could I imagine playing for that energetic of a crowd.
3: Yeah, Yeah. So I
2: remember learning the charts and, like, you know, packing for the tour and having all my things in a line, but not knowing what it would feel like to step out on that stage. And that was unnerving for me because I feel like I can generally mentally prepare for a gig. Even if I'm nervous for a jazz gig or pop gigs I've done in the past, this was something that I had never done before. So I was really kind of throwing myself into something without knowing the result. <laughs> but the first show yeah. the first show went really well. It was in uh, Toronto.
3: You alluded to something that I think is important to note, which is it's not just the number of people in the, the crowd. There's a certain kind of directed energy that happens when you're dealing with someone like Harry Styles, right? And there's been a lot of conversation this summer about the Taylor Swift Eras Tour, you know, in a similar fashion, right? Like the people in that crowd, they are completely amped and and they care so much and they're and they're directing that energy toward the stage. And so, so I wanted to sort of get a sense from you What that feels like, you know, Mm. um, to be sort of in the field of that directed energy.
2: Yeah, I had been to some concerts of that scale as a kid with my sister. We would go see shows. And so I had the perspective of being an audience member in love with a Mm -hmm. band. You know, I was a preteen once. And so I would go to see bands and, um, you know, you scream the whole time and, so being an audience member, I at least had that perspective, like, okay, these fans really love him. And thankfully, we're not on the first couple songs, so I was able to look out into the audience and at least like feel the vibration and, and hear how loud they truly are because the fans are very loud. <laughs> right. And my main concern was whether I'd be able to hear the band mm-hmm. amongst the screaming. But we had in-ear monitors, which I had also never, I mean, I'd used before, but not to the point where, like, it was blocking out sound that loud. Mm -hmm. So I just remember, like, turning up the volume really loud in my ears um, and then walking out on stage and just trying to focus on what was happening on stage. And that's always helped me, I think even still this summer when we were out in Europe. Uh, the moments that I was with the band and for the North America run, we were on a, a round stage. So we were like in the middle of the, the floor and often facing one another, which I loved because I could just look at my friends on stage. Yeah. And that always grounded me, especially in the moments where I was feeling really nervous. Um, I would just pay attention to the band and what was happening there as opposed to mm-hmm. looking out or tuning into the fans.
3: Yeah. So I did not, sadly, see one of these concerts. I remember being in Midtown Manhattan during the Madison Square Garden run and just being amidst the the crowd of people. But I did watch, you know, I've seen some footage from the tour. And, you know, one thing that really strikes me is that Harry Styles, as a performer, he just seems so loose and joyous. And the way that he works with the band also feels really joyous and generous. Um, And so I wanted to also talk about that. You know, There are a lot of gigs, and I know you've played some, where the horn section is kind of like it's a piece that fits into a grid of some kind. And you're sort of hitting your mark, and you're playing your cue. And that's the gig, right? And it feels to me like this was not that.
2: Yes, definitely. He gives a lot of attention to the band. Uh, on stage and otherwise, he really cares about us feeling like a unit and feeling supported, which is not similar to a lot of artists I've worked with. I mean, everyone's given me that respect, but I felt like an integral member of the band when I was working with him in this last year, Um, which was really beautiful, and I think, you know, that shows on stage. I mean, I had friends come to the shows and tell me afterwards that it seemed like we were having a lot of fun together. And I said that Mm -hmm. that was real. You know, like we really enjoy playing with each other. It's one of the reasons I love playing in that band. Um, You know, I gained a lot of really beautiful friendships and uh, it's nice to also be recognized by the artist on stage. You know, like he introduces us, he gives us a moment to be featured. Um, There are some shows where I got to solo um, over one of the songs, which was really cool. So I got to, like, improvise over one of his songs at MSG, which was, you know, unbeatable.
3: Yeah, and I have to imagine that in a moment like that, I mean, is there any part of you, like, in the back of your head that's like, I am playing an improvised trombone solo (laughs) (laughs) at Madison Square Garden,
2: and people are freaking out over (laughs) it? Yeah. No, I mean, definitely when it was suggested... I couldn't really, I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow, I get to do all the things that I love in a show of this scale. Mm -hmm. Like I'm playing my parts and I'm performing in a different way, but then I get to like still improvise, which is what I do mostly outside of that gig. Um, So it's really special. And I had a moment like that on this last tour too, where like I recognize that I'm I'm being noticed as the artist that I want to be noticed as. And that's something that like really hit me this year is that even on that gig, I still felt like I was being respected as the artist that I am and as an individual, even though I'm a part of a band.
3: Yeah. Now, as you were given, you know, these moments to shine on the tour, people noticed <laughs> and, and um, I'm not a native TikTok user. But <laughs> but things things that pop on TikTok do f- sometimes find their way to me. And one of them was this moment that I, you know, I'm sure you got some feedback about. Um there was a, a a TikTok user in I think Edinburgh named Amy Allison and she posted a short clip of you out on the field, I think in a stadium, and and the caption was honorary mention to the trombonist who I think I fell in love with.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so great. That's sweet.
3: I mean, did you have some sense of these moments when your little sort of spotlight turns would catch some kind of virality or be or be shared or, you know, find traction online?
2: Yeah, I noticed that towards the end of the North America tour, people were posting videos of certain moments in the show and... I don't have TikTok, so I would either have friends send them to me or the person would reshare them on Instagram and tag me and I would see it that way. Mm -hmm. And the energy would change every city we went to. And I noticed it mostly when I was on the catwalk because that's when I'm interfacing that closely with the fans. So there were some nights where there was way more attention on us from the fans Mm -hmm. and way more interaction, which is great. I love those moments because you know i still would get nervous walking onto the catwalk um, because this is a moment where i like i can't rely on the band for you know emotional support during the show right like we're just out there on our own and like yes i can look at the other horn players but i'm mainly like looking out into the crowd and they're right there and they all have their phones mm-hmm. out um, yeah <laughs> right
3: <laughs>
2: and so in my mind i mean the main thing that i like try to focus on during shows too is like not tripping I'm like let me make sure that i don't fall during the show Um, it's never happened but yeah they're you know they're right there and you know it's really fun to like catch someone's gaze and have them wave at you and get really excited and so I definitely fed off that energy
3: yeah now you mentioned the you know the relationships with the the band you know with all the musicians and I've been really interested in this dynamic for a long time and and especially I think 20 years ago now I had a really wonderful conversation with the dearly missed trumpeter Roy Hargrove. And we were talking specifically about his experience on D'Angelo's voodoo tour. And he just talked about it in this way that it just it made it sound like such a life-changing experience because of the esprit de corps or you know the sense of family that that formed among these musicians, you know, many of whom came from different sort of areas of the musical you know, landscape. And so I, I wanted to ask you whether that was your experience too. Like, did, did something happen among this band that feels like unrepeatable and like really special and specific?
2: Yes, definitely. I mean, I think touring with an artist like that and touring on a tour like this large, you experience things that I probably won't experience again and my lifetime. I mean, if I do, it'll feel different. Um, Mm -hmm. so it's, yeah, it's nice. I think that, you know, like that naturally bonds us as a group and we're still like trying to find ways to reconnect and see each other in the coming like months. Um, and like collaborating with each other. I mean, everyone in the band makes their own music too, which is really cool. And we got to do that a little bit on the tour. Um, when we had downtime, we would collaborate and, um, listen to each other's music it's like a very generous band so we played the horn players played with uh one of the artists Maddie diaz at her opening set at wembley and we have plans to continue that um this fall she's playing a couple shows in new york and we're going to join her for that so it's nice it's just like a continuation of, oh that's great uh, yeah
3: we'll
1: be back with more of nate's conversation with kalia vandiver
3: Just go to ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply.
1: Listeners, we want to hear from you every other Thursday on Working Overtime. We answer listener questions. So please tell us your creative challenges and let us help you. Drop us a line at slate.com. You can also send a voice memo to that address. We would be super happy to receive one. Or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK and leave a voice message. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Nate's conversation with Kalia Vandiver.
3: You know, I, I'm struck by the fact that your most recent recording is a solo trombone and electronics statement, because, you know, as we said at the top, it's like the opposite scale of like playing to 150,000 people, you know? Um, but I could also see how it might have grown out of this experience um, was that the case? Like, what were some of these pieces or ideas, or even sort of the methodology of the album? Were these things that kind of grew as you were a touring musician?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I was talking to someone about this the other day. Um, in terms of a way that I'm approaching the set and approaching my performance uh, now that I'm now that I've had that experience touring with Harry. Mm-hmm. Um, it's become a little more nerve wracking to play solo sets now that I'm like, now that I'm off this tour. I think because it's so intimate. Yeah. And I'm, you know, back to like performing alone, and performing for folks who, like, really know my music and really love my music, and so I want to make sure that like I'm crafting a set where like people are engaged the whole time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like slow paced and meditative music but i still want people to feel engaged and feel a part of what's happening and i think that's something that i learned from that tour and learned from other artists in the band too like i feel like we had a lot of conversations about that and about like live performance and and how to connect with your audience um even when you're performing like so not just off stage but during the performance how do you connect with the people who are there whether they know your music or not
3: Yeah, that's really interesting. I was, yeah, so I was going to ask about that influence because you said, you know, that the experience influenced this solo work and it sounds like that's partly connection-based, you know, as you say, like how to foster that communication. But maybe it it sounds like you're also implying that there's a structural part of it too, like the shape of a set or the strategy for a set. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about that a bit?
2: Yeah, yeah. So, I've developed the set in a way where, I think at least for me, you know, it starts slow and it kind of, like, it allows everyone to have a breath at the beginning of the set. And for me, too, to to center myself. And then, you know, and then it moves into something, moves into a piece that's rhythmic in nature, you know, so then I feel like people, like, kind of snap back into what's happening. And then... Mm -hmm. I'm still trying to make sure that like there's an element of improvisation in the set because I realized so like I recorded the record which contains all imp- at the time improvisations, but they sound like songs and so then I had yeah. to learn the music that I improvised um, and now they live as songs in in my set mm-hmm. and there's improvisation within that but I I noticed myself at a certain point this year like after the album came out. Like I was mainly just like leading into the song like nature and not including as much improvisation and so now I want to bring that back in more and so I'm like doing that more in the transitions of, of pieces but I also think it's like important to take breaks within the set and not have it be entirely continuous so it allows people mm-hmm. to like process what just happened and then also like I don't know I tell stories throughout the set and like I provide context for some of the pieces and I've noticed that's resonated with people. Mm-hmm. So like someone who has never been to a show like that before, they mm-hmm. at least like have a, like a point of reference. right? And I know I've noticed that's helped people feel connected to the music.
3: Yeah. Like how to find a way in. Right. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny. This kind of connects back to the Harry Styles tour thing because dreams are a common, thread here. You know, you talked about your sister having this dream that manifested your tour experience, but dreams are also a big part of the story of this album, right? And is that some of what you talk about with the audience?
2: Yeah, I talk about dreams as well as um, memories that re-enter your world through music. And that's something that I noticed when I was recording the record. Um, Like, I didn't exactly know what some of the themes would be until we started recording and playing with certain prompts and a lot that came up for me was my childhood and like memories that resurface when I play mm-hmm. and also like where we store those memories, but then also beyond that, like, yeah, kind of living in that dream world. And cause that's what it feels like when I play the solo set, I feel transported.
3: Yeah. Now this is, this is stepping back a little bit, but you studied at Juilliard and there's a wonderful jazz studies program there. But Juilliard is also a place where you get, you know, really rigorous classical training. And, you know, it really it's hard to imagine a place that better equips a musician for sort of whatever, you know. Um, and you've had musical experiences all across, you know, the stylistic map um, since your time there. One of those gigs has been in the Saturday Night Live band and that's a you know it's interesting to me because that is you know it's a contained studio audience but it's a you know a televised audience of of millions and so I wonder what your thoughts are about being in that space being in that band was that in some way preparation for the kind of spotlight that you've found yourself in you know on these arena tours Mm -hmm. or does it feel like really different
2: Feels really different because the live audience for SNL is I don't know maybe I don't know the number but it feels like it's less than a hundred present in the studio mm-hmm. and the main feeling that I had both times I played on SNL was looking into the cameras <laughs> and just thinking okay there are a lot of people behind the camera watching on television but I can't see those bodies here. Which helps. I mean, there's still a lot of pressure, but, you know, I'm not feeling the energy of so many bodies. Nor is the crowd giving as much energy as a crowd in an arena or a stadium. Right. So, I mean, I loved playing on SML both times, but it's a way different energy than playing for that many physical bodies.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's funny. the The parallel that I found myself reaching for just now was like the studio as a kind of cocoon, (laughs) and then like versus the (laughs) the 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 cocoon that you had to sort of sort of create in your mind when you guys were you know on the stage in the middle of a studio floor or arena floor, you know, true. Where it's like, no, we're all in this space together, and all this noise (laughs) and and clamor. And intensity is like happening outside of that space, you know. Right. But you have to like, you have to do that mentally. I I would imagine.
2: Yeah, definitely. And with with both performances on SNL, I couldn't look over at the other musicians. You know, you're you're performing to the cameras, and every you can feel that in the band too. Like everyone's performing to the cameras. Um, you know, I'm watching the leader of the band whether that the first time was Demi Lovato and the second time was Japanese breakfast. So I'm like, I'm looking to them, but I'm not able to interact with the other members of the band, but at least as you said, like creating your own cocoon on stage, I I definitely leaned into that with the shows with Harry, like, you know, eyeing the other people on the stage, like seeing how they're feeling um, and how I can interact with them. And that, that helped me a lot during those shows.
3: Yeah. Um, What, is next for you as a recording artist as a creative force um you know i feel like you're always brimming with ideas um what's cooking
2: yeah i'm the next album that i'll be recording will be another solo album oh wow but That's great i have an interesting relationship with recording in general um where specifically recording in a studio feels really unnatural to me like it's not really a home that I've made for myself I have a lot of good friends who love the studio um, and like spend most of their time recording or like crafting ideas in the studio and I'm certainly someone who I think crafts a lot of ideas through performance and live performance and I feel Mm -hmm. like preparing for these solo sets and like changing the set and like writing new pieces for the set um, has informed where I want to take that music and I've had some conversations with with people recently about, like, can you imagine yourself recording another solo album? And the, the answer has been absolutely yes, I, I want to do that. And I think mm-hmm. how I want to record the next album is, like, in a residency space. Like, I would love to go somewhere and, like, just spend, like, a week or two weeks. I mean, two weeks would be amazing. But I, And I don't necessarily need that much time, but I would love to really, really take my time with the next one Mm -hmm. and not feel the pressure to record in a day or two days, which is normally how I've recorded my albums in the past or recorded other people's albums.
3: Right, right. You know, I I almost hesitate to ask this next question, but I I feel like it may be on the mind of some people listening and it has to do with genre. (laughs) You know, and thinking about your solo recording... And and your forthcoming solo recording, you know, the it's the least interesting part of the music is to ask what is it, <laughs> you know, like where does it fit on a genre <laughs> spectrum, um, and I think that's true of your your work in general. Even though I think you know the shorthand is you're a jazz musician, but you know what does that mean really, right? And so I wondered, um, Harry Styles is very clearly working in a pop space, and there's a sort there's a certain kind of omnivorous quality to the pop that he creates, right? But, but you know, I think we can say he's a pop star, you know? Um, and so I wonder, is this ever anything that interests you, that the sort of play of genre and how it interacts with audience expectation, you know? Yeah. Especially as you're making music that is like pretty abstract and very personal and doesn't conform to a lot Mm. of you know prescription
2: right yeah i mean it's something that i've thought a lot about especially as i started putting out music as an independent artist so Mm
0: -hmm.
2: even defining in bloom and regrowth i mean especially with regrowth i didn't want to define it as jazz like explicitly jazz um but now i listen back to it i'm like this is jazz And I do find myself as a jazz artist and I feel like my relationship to that term changes a lot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that also depends on, like, my relationship with the music and the music that I'm making. And thankfully, like, in the last, I don't know, three or four years, a lot of the music that I'm creating in that space uh, with my band or other bands, I feel really supported as... A jazz musician, and I guess what that means to me is is having my own voice. Like being a jazz musician mm-hmm. to me means like being an improviser and having an indi- individual voice. and I feel like that does cross over to my solo album as well, where it's been described as ambient, but it's also still been labeled as jazz.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And it also like if folks have a way to define it and if that helps them, then that I'm okay with that as well. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Um, Yeah. Whatever
3: will get you to the
2: music. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I remember having a conversation with these two girls at a college once when I I visited Wesleyan with my quartet years ago. We played a show and they told me afterwards that they really enjoyed the show but they were hesitant to come because it was labeled as jazz. (laughs) Mm. Um, But to them it didn't sound like jazz and they liked that about the set. So... I mean, that conversation was cool because I'm like, all right, like, you still came even though you were put off by the label. But now because they listened to it and it was described as jazz, maybe they'll be more open to listening to other artists because, I mean, now the music that people are are making within jazz is like all over the map creatively. And Mm -hmm. it's such a beautiful landscape. I mean, it always has been. But I think what's happening right now is really exciting for the music. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Well, obviously, I agree. And (laughs) I'm so glad that you are um, such a crucial part of that landscape. Um, You've already done so much great work. And I know that it is, in some ways, it's just the beginning, which is very, very exciting. Um, So, Kalia, thank you again so much for joining us on Working. Uh, What a pleasure.
2: Thanks, Nate, for having me. Appreciate it.
1: Up next, Nate and I will talk about the challenges and learning opportunities that come from moving to a larger stage, literally and figuratively.
0: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: Nate, before we begin, I have to tell you that even though I did not go to see Harry Styles, I know exactly what Kalia meant about the noise and the energy. Because when Love on Tour was in Edinburgh earlier this summer, I could hear the screaming, not the music, but the audience, (laughs) in my apartment, even though I live about two miles away from the Murrayfield Stadium where they were playing.
3: A seismic event.
1: Totally. Like a lot of the big tours have come through time this year, but that one was truly like nothing else. So it sounds absolutely amazing. There were so many fascinating threads in that interview, but I want to begin with the Notion of an artist who has spent most of her career performing in relatively small venues, finding herself on what is almost the biggest imaginable scale. And I feel this happens more frequently with jazz musicians, maybe because they get recruited to the house bands of late night hosts, shows and so on. I'm thinking of the drummer Terry Lynn Carrington, who was on the Arsenio Hall show band, but also, you know, double bassist Esperanza Spaulding went from small gigs I saw at Joe's Pub to Barack Obama's Nobel ceremony. And I sense that over the course of your career, you've spoken with several people who've experienced that kind of massive expansion of scale. And I'm wondering what seems to be the main takeaway or learning experience when artists are suddenly launched onto a bigger stage.
3: Mm. Well, number one, perspective, right? Mm. Any creative artist who's chosen improvised music as their path is pretty clearly motivated by something other than fame and fortune. Yes. Uh, But it can still be pretty destabilizing to get a taste of that. And you have to perform a constant self-assessment. And, you know, the artists you've named, they've navigated it extremely well. A couple of weeks ago, I wrote a piece for NPR Music about another example, John Batiste, who went from being a New Orleans jazz pianist to the band leader on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert to the winner of Album of the Year at the 2022 Grammy Awards. Um, So, I mean, talk about a a glow up, right? Yeah. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I thought it was really cool when... Kalia said that she had learned a lot from this tour in both practical and conceptual terms and applied those lessons to her own work. And, you know, those lessons weren't related to the, you know, the screaming fans so much as they were to like how to keep focus, how to communicate, you know, how to bring that kind of energy. Um, So I I thought that really showed um, that she's looking in the right direction.
1: Yeah, totally. She seems incredibly grounded and thoughtful. And yeah, that's wonderful for creative people in other art forms. I guess the parallel is probably when you go from doing your solo venture, which might mean sitting in your study, writing your book to sharing it with the world, which could be doing readings or maybe interviews to promote it. And I think Kalia's advice about just focusing on what's happening and trying not to trip could also (laughs) serve as advice for lots of people. You know, enjoy the moment and focus on not falling on your face.
3: 100%. Keep your (laughs) head. Try not to trip. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's it. And... You know, to connect this to your earlier question, you can tell from Kalia's answers to my questions that she is putting the music first and foremost, you know, appreciating the fans, enjoying the spotlight and this, you know, incredible experience, but trying to make sure that at every moment she stays connected to her fellow band members and connected to the music and the task at hand and also connected to, you know, the pilot light of her own creativity. Ooh, yeah. So again, it's about perspective and understanding that when you are in that public discovery mode, that's one part of the creative life cycle. But mm. so is the moment when it's just you and a blinking cursor on a screen, or a blank sheet of paper, or you know, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, or just like a cup of coffee and like the dark of the night, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, and your um, own thoughts. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's all part of the process.
1: Gosh, yes. It was really fascinating for me to hear Kalia's thinking around performing an album that began its life as an improvisation, but which effectively, and it seems slightly reluctantly, becomes a series of songs or an established piece of music the more you perform it so that it no longer is improvisation. Like, that's just mm-hmm. interesting on a on a sort of definitional level, but it also... You know, it just reminds you how generative improvisation can be um, mm-hmm. in so many different ways. And I'm wondering, in your creative practice as a writer or perhaps as a musician, I, I actually don't know if you are a musician, but I just kind of assume that as somebody who writes about jazz, you must be. Uh, <laughs> but do you have any equivalent of that initial loose improvisatory step?
3: Well, you're, you're right to identify that as a generative Process, you know, and, and there's mm. so many examples in jazz of great, great compositions that we consider as, you know, canon that initiated out of improvisation. You know, um, a lot of Miles Davis music was generated that way. Um, yeah. You know, the, the only analogy that comes to mind for me as a critic is... I think the way language migrates from my little reporter's notebook into a finished piece of writing. Mm. And and here I'll say my undergraduate major was not journalism. It was creative writing with an Ooh. emphasis in poetry. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And, and I don't I don't write poetry anymore. But when I'm in a club or a concert hall, jotting down descriptive phrases, it's you know, it's always more poetical than analytical. You know, I, I find myself searching for an image or a sensory impression that the music inspires. Um, you know, it's very freeform and it's very sort of like no judgment in, in terms of yeah. you know what I'm jotting down. I am making judgments about the music, <laughs> but then when I when I look back over my notes, I can draw from those materials. You know, almost like a designer rifling through fabric swatches, and often that hastily scribbled line or idea from the notebook jumps right into the piece.
1: Ooh, that is so interesting. Now I'm like, how can I see Nate's little reporter's notebook? Because now I'm just (laughs) totally fascinated.
3: Yes, they are under lock and key. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and and June, to answer your question, I was a musician. I I guess I still am. But at one (laughs) point, I was a a pretty serious, aspiring jazz drummer.
1: (gasps) Oh, gosh
3: gigged a lot in college, um, thought at one point that that would be my career, but the writing just uh, took over. So that's where I stand.
1: Yeah. Earlier, I mentioned Esperanza Spalding, and I've often thought that the only instrument less mobility-friendly than a double bass is a drum kit.
3: Oh, yes. I lived in a uh, fifth-floor walk-up in New York City (laughs) for 10 years, and um, let me tell you that the lugging Before and after every gig. Yeah, I do not miss that.
1: Nate, as you mentioned at the top of the show, Slate Plus listeners will get to hear about Kalia's favorite horn sections. I would love to know which horn sections you are particularly fond of.
3: Oh, June, I thought you'd never ask. (laughs) So Kalia mentioned a couple of good suggestions. I won't spoil them here. Um, (laughs) They are great, and I have no argument with them. Hmm. But I'm going to add one that she did not mention. Hmm. This is the horn section for an Oakland funk band called Tower of Power. Do you know them? I don't think I do, no. There's a live album they made in the mid-70s called Live and in Living Color. And there was a period during my teenage years when I practically wore this CD out. (laughs) And it's partly because of the rhythm section, but also that horn section, which, by Mm -hmm. the way, featured Lenny Pickett, the tenor saxophonist who who now leads the Saturday Night Live band. Uh. You know, they just had this amazing combination of absolute airtight precision and pure fire. (laughs)
1: <laughs> mm, wow. Well, that's about all the time we have this week. We hope you've enjoyed the show and the horn sections. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That way you will never miss an episode of Working. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com workingplus working
3: Thank you again to Kalia Vandiver and to our amazing producer, Cameron Drews, who deserves an arena's worth of screaming crowds. <laughs> we will be back next week with Isaac Butler's conversation with Marion McGowan, an executive producer on the Hulu series, The Great. Until then, get back to work.